PM board bombs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast, where board studying continues to be enjoyable. My name is Blake Briggs, and today I'm joined by Dr. Travis Smith. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for having me back, Blake. Absolutely, absolutely. Another appearance on EM Board Bombs. Basically, you're a regular now. You're regular. Listen, that was my uh, New Year's resolution, so it's already been fulfilled. (laughs) We're honored, truly honored. For each 15-minute episode, you gain high-yield board knowledge, as we like to say, come for the STEM, stay for the content. You can sign up on our website for free updates and episodes, printed handouts, and free review quizzes to test your knowledge on topics. And you can do this by going to our website at emboardbombs.com. Again, that's emboardbombs.com. Also find us on Twitter and Instagram at emboardbombs. Dr. Smith, sir, are you ready for the topic? I am ready, sir. I was wondering, what what, uh, is Iltafat doing right now? I didn't know if you... Iltafat is actually busy polishing his cowboy boots. He just got a pair recently. And oh, I, I, I know, saw those I, on Instagram, actually. I know. I was surprised to see that he delved into cowboy boots. Um, he doesn't strike me as someone that is a Wild West guy, but uh, you know, he heard about our topic this week and he got inspired. He's actually, once COVID is ending, he's going to do a Wild West tour and pick up horse riding, too. <laughs> but <laughs> All right. We got a 64-year-old competition gunslinger who presents with 15 minutes of substernal chest pressure after losing a card game at the local bar. It's a classic place. Angina Saloon. <laughs> he was transported by his friend, Sheriff Stemmy, to the nearest emergency department, and they were able to wire you his ECG that shows ST elevation in the inferior leads, greater than 2 millimeters. The patient states that he has had a stent placed in the past after a, quote, near-miss, quote, shootout in Tombstone, Arizona. Transfer to another hospital where cardiac catheterization is available has a door to balloon time of 90 minutes. Which of the following is the correct management strategy? Choice A, fibrinolytic therapy with transfer to PCI. Choice B, give aspirin, start heparin drip, and admit to ICU. Choice C, emergency cardiac bypass graft surgery as soon as possible. And choice D, immediate transfer for PCI. Ooh, this is a tough one. What's the correct answer? I'm going to go with D, like Desperado. Immediate transfer. Oh, clever. Is that why you did it? Oh, of course. You were 100% correct on that one. Well done. What are we talking about today? Besides Cowboys. We're going to talk today about STEMI because it is a very, very important topic. STEMI is one of those things that, you know, we must diagnose kind of immediately. Mm -hmm. One of the most common symptoms of STEMI is chest discomfort. Um, And yes, you can still have a STEMI and, and not have any chest pain and have shortness of breath. But in fact, chest pain and diaphoresis have the highest likelihood ratio and positive predictive value for STEMI. And usually when we're kind of looking at patients and having them describe their chest pain. We're asking questions to find clues that have, uh, you know, a high likelihood ratio, a positive predictive value or a negative predictive value to kind of rule in or rule out stuff. Chest discomfort is typically retrosternal, but they can describe it however they want. Usually it's chest pressure, uh, less likely going to be sharp or pleuritic chest pain. Usually it's going to radiate. It's going to radiate to the left arm, to the right arm, or both. Although the classic presentation of chest pressure with radiation to the jaw, arm, or both is 96% specific. It's only about 11% sensitive. 
So remember, if it's not all there, that doesn't mean that they don't have a STEMI, okay? Exactly. Don't forget atypical presentations of ACS. You know, we've talked about this before. In nearly 20% of cases, MIs are either painless, silent, or atypical. Look for this specifically in elderly patients, women, diabetics. They're particularly prone to these atypical types of MIs. An atypical MI presents with pain predominantly in the neck, jaw, ear, arm, or in the epigastrum. Other signs to look for in STEMI, sudden dyspnea, weakness, diaphoresis, lightheadedness, hypotension, syncope, a new arrhythmia, nausea, or vomiting. In your evaluation, look for evidence of systemic hypoperfusion, like hypotension, tachycardia, altered mental status, a patient who looks really clammy, their skin's pale. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is concerning for cardiogenic shock. You know, and when that's present, it's not good. It's not good. Yeah. Usually about, you know, th- <laughs> thankfully not all presentations are like that, but if they are about five to 10% of cases are, you know, have cardiogenic shock associated with stem. That's when it really hits the fan. Yep. That's when you got to get your pads out, mean going and call for help quick. Yeah. It's one of those things that uh, honestly, I think everyone forgets the pads. Mm-hmm. I, I, for one can attest to that when I have STEMI patients and the nurse is like, put the pads on. I'm like, oh shoot, that's a really good, really good call. I wasn't thinking about that. And the patient could look fine for one minute, and then you just never know. I mean, remember, they are, you know, experiencing dead tissue on their heart, so. Yeah, yep, you don't, the worst thing that that can happen is, you know, for them to go into VFib arrest, and you don't know where yes, the pads are. Ready. Yep. absolutely. Put, put them on where the patient can roll over and say, here, put one on my back. <laughs> Make sure you're looking out for the acute onset of heart failure, dyspnea, hypoxia, rails, wheezing, absolutely. exam. The, these patients will unlikely have peripheral edema. So, you know, with acute ischemic heart failure, they're not going to have all those classic signs of it. Also on the EKG, look for AV block. It's been found in about 7% of cases and can result in bradycardia, low cardiac output. Uh, have your pacer pads ready like we talked about. And inferior STEMIs respond better to pacing and atropine compared to uh, anterior STEMI. The big thing here is when we're thinking about diagnosis of STEMI is one, as Dr. Smith said earlier, it's really interesting that, you know, there's not many problems in medicine that we accept a almost perfect zero miss rate, if you think about it. You know what I mean? Like, this is the only medical problem you can think about. Maybe a stroke, I, I suppose. But are there really other, other problems in medicine where we accept a less than 1% miss rate? No, th- this is it. This is amazing. And it's, it's amazing to think about. You can't miss a STEMI, but N-STEMI is difficult to diagnose. And we just said the symptoms are hard to diagnose. And so really, this really does come down to EKG interpretation. Mm-hmm. And clinical symptoms are part of that as well. And so the only things you need to diagnose a STEMI is clinical symptoms and an EKG. And that might sound like common sense to the, our listeners. And that's because our listeners are super smart. But to anyone who doesn't listen to EM board bombs, right. they think that biomarkers are also part of that. And they're absolutely not. Nope. So biomarkers will easily be normal early on, especially if the patient presents within, you know, one hour. So what are the ECG criteria? And I like how you call it ECG and I call it EKG. <laughs> what what do they call it in, in the wild, wild west, you know? Um, E stop, K stop, G stop. Yes, correct. <laughs> it was a telegraph. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. I'm glad you enjoyed that. So the ECG criteria. Remember that the goal is to get an ECG. It feels weird saying ECG, by the way. I'm used to saying EKG. Is it weird if I say EKG? Is there a prejudice against people that say EKG? Uh, you know, I, I say it ECG sometimes when I want to sound... Because you're Canadian. When, yeah, when I have my Canadian hat on or when I try to sound smart. Um, <laughs> EKG just flows so much better. Um, it does. It does. All right. Remember, the goal is to get an EKG within 10 minutes 
of first encounter. That's very, very important. And the diagnosis here is greater than one millimeter, that's one little box, of ST segment elevation in two contiguous chest or limb leads, or greater than two millimeter ST segment elevation in men greater than 40 years old in leads V2, V3. Another option is ST segment elevation greater than 2.5 millimeters in men less than 40 in leads V2 through V3. And finally, in women, we look for greater than 1.5 millimeter SC segment elevation in leads V2 through V3. So notice that it changes for each age. For men greater than 40, the criteria is greater than 2 millimeters. For men less than 40, it's a higher criteria, so it's 2.5 millimeters. And for women, it's a much lower criteria, 1.5 millimeters, all in leads V2 through V3. And remember that the chest or limb leads otherwise are always going to be greater than 1 millimeter. So if it's not V2, V3, it's greater than one millimeter. And just look at our handout too if you want to, if you're more of a visual person, you want to see that. And uh, I know it's hard to look at these numbers and listen to them on the podcast. So localization of ischemia, that can also be determined by what EKG leads show ST segment elevation. And again, this is in the handout. I'm just going to read through it here. But the anterior wall ischemia is two or more of the precordial leads. That's V1 through V6. And if you're particularly looking at the left anterior descending, otherwise known as the Widowmaker. <laughs> the Widowmaker, which sounds like a Wild West name of like a gunslinger. Uh, that would be leads V1 through V4, the lad. Anterior septal ischemia, that's also specifically V1 through V4, localized to the proximal LAD. So in apical or lateral ischemia, we're looking at leads AVL and one as well as V4 through V6, and specifically localized to the distal diagonal LAD, or left circumplex. And then finally, inferior wall ischemia. I would say this is probably the, the most commonly remembered one, most distinct area, 2, 3, and AVF. And that is associated with the right coronary artery in 90% of patients. Sometimes, though, due to anatomical differences, that can be associated with the left circumflex. Also, you know, the, there's all these other mimickers you're going to uh, school me on here. And, and I think knowing, you know, where the lesion is kind of helps you, like, is this a mimicker? I mean, if you have, you know, diffuse ST elevation and there's no reciprocal changes, or if it doesn't really fit a good vascular territory, like, you know, someone who had um, Takasubo, knowing what you just went over. I think really helps you, you know, hey, this isn't localized correctly, or hey, why, why do I have an anterior lateral and inferior STEMI? This kind of, this is weird. You know, it makes you kind of think outside the box or like, hey, you know, in, in that minute time where you have to critically think whether or not you're going to call the STEMI, point you to ask some different questions to the patient. Oh, oh hey, I see you have a uh, dialysis fistula in your arm. When's the last time you went to dialysis? Right, right. And speaking of that, probably the most common lab mimicker Possibly the most common mimicker in general is hyperkalemia. And I would say that is the only time, if you're concerned about a mimicker, that you would potentially hold off and wait for the lab value. Now, let me say that again. If you see a STEMI, you never delay cath lab activation ever. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying in a certain clinical context, Dr. Smith is 100% right. If we're looking at the EKG, it just doesn't quite fit a contiguous area or lateralization to a certain lead. Yes, we activate the cath lab. Yes, we get cardiology involved. But also you're thinking to yourself, you know what? Uh, the situation here just smells 
smells funny. It seems like hyperkalemia. Other mimickers to think about, we have handouts on these and podcasts on these. Uh, pericarditis, there's a handout on the website regarding that. And you want to look for diffuse SC segment elevation without reciprocal T wave changes. Myocarditis, another handout on our website. Hyperkalemia, we just mentioned, is another handout on our website. Left bundle branch block, we don't have time to talk about that right now, but that's in the handout. Brugada, Osborne waves in hypothermia, and early repolarization. And you're looking for that J point notching. Speaking of the J point, when you're reading EKGs for ST segment elevation and depression, you should focus on the J point. The J point is used to determine the magnitude of the ST segment elevation. And that's compared basically to the isoelectric part of the tracing. It's not our goal to be 100% specific when we call STEMIs. Correct. You know, you need to be 100% sensitive, okay? And I know sometimes, you know, you might look back and it's like, oh man, it wasn't a STEMI. But hey, listen, you know, you're seeing the patient. They have a concerning EKG. You do not want to miss it, okay? Absolutely. Speaking of left bundle branch block, that is a tongue twister. Remember that it can obscure the SD segment analysis and complicate ECG interpretation. The presence of a new LBBB is not a STEMI equivalent anymore, but when there is a new left bundle and other clinical or lab findings suggestive of acute MI, it associated with, it's associated with high mortality. And again, look at our handout for details on that. So unique cases of STEMIs, and we're talking about ST segment elevation in the AVR lead. We're looking at isolated posterior MIs, RV infarction, which can occur in inferior MIs. Please look at our handout for these on the website. It's already up under the cardiology section. We don't have time to go over these. So hey, let's delve into troponins. Yeah, you got it. Elevation and and cardiac troponin are usually present in those presenting with a STEMI. However, patients present soon enough, you know, it's been an hour since their symptom onset. The initial troponin can be negative, and it is, I mean, I, I see it a lot. An elevation in the troponin I above the 99th percentile of normal is both sensitive and specific for myocardial damage. Troponin, an elevated troponin level is detectable at about one to four hours after the onset of an acute MI. Um, they're maximally sensitive at about eight to 12 hours and, and peak at about 10 to 24 hours. The thing is, do not wait for a positive. Never. Don't do this prior to proceeding with PCI. Um, if the patient has ECG findings or EKG findings, and the, the clinical symptoms are there, so do not wait for it. I often get that troponin back when the patient's already, you know, in in recovery in the ICU following it. Same. The other thing that we, you know, I think we've talked about before, we don't do CK and CKMBs anymore. Those aren't measured. You know, for the most part, troponin is the, the sensitive marker that we use. Moving on to imaging. In most places, a chest x-ray can be quickly performed, especially if you have portable radiology x-ray at your hospital, which most average shops do in the United States. And as long as this does not delay transport to the cath lab, go ahead and just get it. If it delays transport, completely omit it. Yes, you should think about aortic dissection, but an abnormal chest x-ray is only present in about you know, 60-something percent of cases. So make sure you know that if you are highly suspicious of a dissection, you need to stop and get a stat CTHS, abdomen pelvis. All right, let's talk about the management here. So initial pharmacologic management in the emergency department can vary by institution. So we're just giving general guidelines here, and obviously we recommend consulting with your interventional cardiologist. It's good to become familiar with all the different possible treatments. However, we're just going to zip through this. So number one, Travis Smith's favorite therapy. Oxygen. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love it. Put it on everyone. Put it on everyone. It's not harmful. 
It's a medication, remember. <laughs> it's a medication. It's no longer recommended if the oxygen saturation is above 90%, as some studies have showed harm with larger infarcts and dysrhythmias. If you want to learn more, you can go to Travis Smith's Twitter page, and he has lots of rants talking about why we shouldn't be doing this. Oh, yeah. Lo- love to rant. <laughs> so if they, if they come in, listen, we love AMS. They're awesome. But if they come in and they're on oxygen and they're not hypoxic, just gently remove the nasal cannula from their yes. body. Not aggressively, just very gently. Gently. Don't glare at anyone when you do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so beta blockers. These are not typically given in the ED, and that's totally cool if they aren't, but they need to be started within 24 hours, and don't worry, cardiology and medicine take care of that. Antiplatelets. Let's zoom through these. Guess what the best antiplatelet in the world is? Aspirin. <laughs> Aspirin's incredible. I'm always amazed by aspirin. Nothing can beat aspirin's number needed to treat. It has the greatest benefit alone. It takes less than 60 minutes to take effect. And you want to, of course, give non-enteric coated 325 chewable aspirin prior to PCI. Talking about other antiplatelets, clopidogrel, prasugrel, and ticagrelor, these bind ADP receptors and are recommended prior to PCI based on some 2013 uh, AHA guidelines. However, the drug selection is extremely specific, sometimes even cardiology dependent. So get on board with your PCI team, get on board with what your hospital wants. All right, moving on, nitrates. So studies have not found that giving nitrates reduces infarct wall size. They don't reduce mortality. We probably- What, 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 what? Exactly, everybody loves nitrates. They are given either a sublingual, you know, uh, 0.4 milligram dose or an IV drip, depending on the severity of symptoms. I have never started an IV drip uh, for STEMI. Me either. Um, nope. It, I it seems either. a little bit aggressive. Their main goal is obviously to reduce afterload and dilate the coronary tree, but you got to be really cautious with patients with inferior wall and right-sided MI and those with hypotension or severe uh, aortic stenosis history. I would say that aortic stenosis is the most commonly forgotten about elephant in the room there, but keep in mind that that can happen. Statins, obviously atorvastatin or resuvastatin is given. These are high-dose, high-potency drugs that are very helpful. And then anticoagulation, we are not going to get into the debate that is currently going on in emergency medicine of whether or not these are necessary and or effective. Uh, when we're talking about anoxaparin, heparin, or bevalaridin, uh, those are all cardiology dependent. And depending on your institution, uh, we are not going to get into the evidence behind these. It's weak evidence. I'm going to be frank with you uh, for giving these in STEMI and NSTEMI patients. But we don't have time for that today. Just know on the boards that it is indicated. One of the most important parts of this document, that's why I'm reading it, no offense, <laughs> is, <laughs> is the mainstay treatment for STEMIs, reperfusion therapy, okay? That is the goal. So we can do this two ways. You can do this via percutaneous coronary intervention or using thrombolytics. PCI has been shown by solid studies to have enhanced survival and a lower rate of intracranial hemorrhage compared to fibrinolytics. There is also a lower rate of recurrent MI. Decision for PCI. This is the, probably the most important part of the podcast for the board question. Any patient um, you know, should go under immediate PCI if available on site. The ideal door to balloon time is less than 90 minutes. You know, most places like at our shop, you know, we, we are less than 60 minutes. You know, that a lot of times is a hospital-wide policy. Hashtag subtle flex. Yeah, hashtag subtle flex. <laughs> and I'm sure it's like that at your place too. For any patient presenting at an ED with no available uh, on-site PCI, that situation changes. Or if your semi-team is unable to come in for 90 minutes, that situation changes. Uh, you must know this for the test and clinical practice. So a rapid transfer to a PCI a center, if available, to do so within 90 minutes. So if it's available within 90 minutes, you make the transfer. You do not need to get mm-hmm. fibrolinux if you're able to do that, if a transfer is within less 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. If you're presenting within less than two hours of onset of symptoms, 
and unable to transfer within 90 minutes to a PCI center, give the full-dose fibrinolytic therapy and transfer to a PCI-capable mm-hmm. center. And then the last option is if presenting greater than two hours, transfer for primary PCI, if available, to do so within less than 120 minutes. If not, fibrinolytics may be appropriate up to 12 hours. PCI can be performed within 48 hours, but no sooner than three hours after giving thrombolytic therapy. Absolutely. Remember that thrombolytics can cause a strange rhythm called a fibrinolytic reperfusion dysrhythmia, AIVR. It looks like a ventricular escape, but the rate's greater than 50. You don't need to treat this. In fact, anti-dysrhythmic therapy can cause hemodynamic collapse. So let that one ride. Yeah, it's really funny. This is one of those classic examples of the of the quote in emergency medicine. Don't just do something. Stand there. <laughs> I, I love doing that. So summary. What is in a timely manner when it comes to transferring a STEMI patient for PCI? Because this is really where the meat of the topic is and probably the most confusing, I think, for a lot of people. And it's really fascinating because a lot of emergency medicine residents are not effectively trained on this. I wasn't because I was at a PCI center because usually emergency medicine residencies are at the PCI center. Yeah, <laughs> so when it you is get rare, it, you're transferring. When, when they let you go out in moonlight, you know, and you're mm-hmm. out in, in the boondocks. Yes. Uh, or you're working at a, uh, you know, a smaller community place. Right. You need to know this. You need to know your thrombolytic dose. And if you don't know it, um, you know, talk to your pharmacist, see what you have. Phone a friend. Phone a friend and just know what you're doing in these cases. If the duration of the STEMI is less than two hours, PCI should be initiated in 90 minutes or less. If it's two to three hours, PCI should be initiated within 120 minutes. And after three hours, it's within 120 minutes. All right, I think that's everything. You covered it, man. This was great. What a, what a good review. Very good review. And we saw, um, just as a quick note, the handout we released on STEMI, that handout shattered our record for most visitors in a day to our website. Ooh, nice. Solid. Well, I want to say thanks to all the listeners for downloading that. And also, I just wanted to give a little plug. Um, one of my students, uh, Chase Tinley, helped yeah, um, with, with this uh, document. So thank you, Chase, for that. And uh, good luck in the match, sir. He's uh, going into anesthesia. Awesome. Good luck to him. And finally, remember to go to our website at ianborbombs.com. You'll see our first amazing interactive question bank podcast, the first of its kind, one and only. Check it out. You're in for a treat. Thanks again for sticking with us, Travis. It's good to have you on the team. You got it, my man. Appreciate it. No problem. Talk to you next time.